This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I'll suck you up and I'll spit you out and I'll play with your babies till you scream Hello, 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 and welcome to the very first 2019 episode of Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I am Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress, and joining me on a morning when technology is not our friend (laughs) is three of my fabulous co-hosts, Jessica Luther, freelance writer and author in Austin, Texas, Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, that is still a tongue twister for me, in New York. And then, of course, Shireen Ahmed, the freelance sports writer and a person we are very proud did not throw her microphone this morning over there up in (laughs) Toronto, Canada. Hi, friends. How are you? I'm here. (laughs) Good morning. (laughs) Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Friends, just work with us. We're having one of those days, but we are excited to get this episode to you today because I think it's going to be a good one, not that I'm biased. In honor of the college football playoff national championship game, which will have been played by the time you hear this, we're going to discuss how to fix amateurism. Done. So, you know, glad we're going to take care of that. Then we're going to get get you caught up on the latest regarding an evergreen topic here, how FIFA and the powers that be are still enabling corruption and causing corruption in women's soccer across the globe. Then I'm going to talk with Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine and the Racket Magazine podcast to talk all things tennis and get everyone ready for the Australian Open, which is the best thing about January, in my incredibly biased opinion. First things first, want to thank our Patreon supporters. They got us through (laughs) a full year of Patreon support in 2018. We could not be more grateful. If you are a Patreon supporter, that means for as little as $2 a month or $5 a month, you got access to our best of newsletter last year where we all went through some of our best the best tweets of the year, the best score lines of the year, or the best of the badasses of the year, and just kind of shared some of the good that came from 2019. So that was a really fun read. And we also broke down on our Patreon-only episode in December, the Women's World Cup draw. So obviously, that's the thing we're all looking forward to this year. And you can get our take as well as Brenda's really hot take on how draws should be done. So you don't want to miss that. And we need to keep growing our base. We need to keep growing this podcast because we want to do really big things this year. So if you are listening and you haven't joined our Patreon or you haven't written us a review on iTunes or you haven't told every single person you know about this podcast, then you know what? 
maybe think about doing that. All right. That's enough shilling for today. I want to take a minute to talk about something that's not completely sports related, but it really, really made me happy this week. And it really just kind of reminded me of the power of intersectional feminism and taking over. And that was the joyous inspirational scenes during the swearing in of the new U.S. congressional members. Uh, Did anyone see this? Were there any favorite moments? I just, there were just some really heartwarming scenes, I thought. Jess? Yeah, I mean, there was so much good. It was really fun. I think, you know, us women here at Burn It All Down always love to see lots of women in any male-dominated space taking over. But yeah, there is, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had quite a week with her dancing video and everything that came out of that. But also, I loved that she wore white and she had her gold hoops and her red lipstick. And she had this great tweet about how she wore white to honor the women who paved the path before me. And for all the women yet to come from suffragettes to Shirley Chisholm, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the mothers of the movement. And just that feeling of like history being made, but also like, all the work that's gone into this moment of history being made. There were so many great, there were moments with kids, which I was like, yeah, of course, right? As soon as you get a lot of women in a lot of space, their kids are coming along. So Rashida Tlaib, who I would like to support her cursing from this week, but beyond that, she was one of the first two Muslim women elected to Congress. It was her kids, right, that dabbed when she voted for Pelosi to be Speaker of the House? Yeah, that was, yes, yes. (laughs) It's the best. You guys should look at the video of her voting and her two sons are there and they both dab after she votes for Nancy Pelosi. And then I think Pelosi's granddaughter was there and was freaking out every time someone voted for her grandmother. She was like clapping in the chamber. (laughs) Which is just like spectacular. That's awesome. Brenda? Yeah, I loved everybody coming out on social media and posting pictures of themselves, like Nadia Velasquez from New York, who who tweeted out photos that from scenes during the day of her and her fellow uh, women, you know, as they entered Congress. So I just generally sat back and and watched, and it was super enjoyable. And the two, the Native American women being sworn in, that was just super moving. I know Shereen tweeted out about it. And it was just lovely. Former Badass Women of the Week. Yes, Sharice Davids. Shereen, I know you're not American, but did, did you pay attention to this at all? Did you? Was there anything that you enjoyed? Well, it's really hard not to be inundated by American news. So, <laughs> yes, we're yeah. <laughs> but, but totally. But I have to say, out of all the news that I've watched in the recent, I don't know, two years, this has been the most uplifting. Like when Deb Haaland wiped her tears with Sharice's David scarf, I was like crying because I use my hijab to wipe tears of my girlfriends and vice versa. I know that. And I'm not trying. Someone was like, don't make it about you. I'm like, I'm not making it about me. I'm just saying that that act of camaraderie and love was very sincere. I am also completely here for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's dance video. And our friend of the show, Caitlin Burns, actually tweeted out a new Twitter account that has that video clip to every song imaginable. Oh my God, her, it's so good. Her dancing works with every song. I suggested a Bollywood tune. It hasn't been done yet, but just because I'm so excited by it. And you know, the kids dabbing Rashida Tlaib's Tweet Your Thobe that came out, 
I mean, I never in my life thought I would see a Philistine sobe in Congress and she wore one to her swearing in. So it was, it was magnificent. Congrats to all of you because you deserve hope. And I understand why there's oftentimes people don't feel like there is any. This was well-deserved for Americans. Well, most Americans who aren't racist assholes. So yes. <laughs> the, the few of us. <laughs> the few of you out there. No, I'm really happy for you because y'all deserve this joy. It was, and you know, it was very emotional. There, you know, the Muslim women in my office, you know, both were saying, you know, that they never thought they'd see the day where they saw, you know, Muslim women in Congress, and that just really, you know, was really emotional. Uh, and Elon Omar's tweet from Minnesota, she had this tweet that said, "23 years ago, from a refugee camp in Kenya, my father and I arrived at an airport in Washington D.C." Today, we returned to that same airport on the eve of my swearing in as the first Somali American in Congress. So that's just so amazing. Jess? Yeah, and everyone should check out her photo when she's hugging her son after she's sworn in. That is an amazing photo. But I wanted to mention one thing from the Senate side of this. Kirsten Cinema. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Kirsten Cinema. she's the first openly bisexual senator in history, and she was sworn in on a law with a law book instead of a Bible by known homophobe, first homophobe even, you could say, Mike Pence himself. And she wore this amazing sleeveless top, and so you can, like, see her guns. Like, she's got guns on those arms. And it is just, like... Just the the symbolism of that photo and what that means in the Senate that Mike Pence will have to see her a lot, like all of those things that it's it's lovely. It was just her entire wardrobe. I know it's not about the wardrobe, but oh my god, it was very good. It was very <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> all right, look, we're gonna go back to the sports world now, but every once in a while we got to take our wins so we can get them and celebrate them. So. Okay, so here we are, the end of another college football season. Jess, amateurism, is it good? (laughs) (laughs) And if not, what do we do about it? (laughs) Yeah, so as Lindsay said at the top of the show, by the time you all hear this, the college football national championship game will be over. And either Alabama or Clemson will once again be atop the sport. This will be their fourth meeting in four years in the playoffs, the third of those meetings being in the final. They've each beaten the other to win the crown. And together, these powerhouses show us that not paying the players doing the actual labor on the field does not ensure parity in the game, right? That's always one of the arguments that if we start paying these guys, then all of a sudden there won't be parity in the game, which is laughable. So... You know, the whole point of this is, we've talked about this before, the myth of amateurism is just that, that it's a myth. There's no reason that it has to exist despite what people say about how complicated it would be to fix it. On some level, you can just answer all of these claims with just pay people. In March, Patrick Kirby, who writes on this a lot, he wrote a piece for Deadspin that argued we should pay the players and that's really it. We um, we managed to pay people all the time for their labor. But I really loved this bit at the end that I wanted to quote. Quote, allowing college athletes to be paid really can seem like an enormous earth-shaking shift, but that's only if you think about it the way the NCAA wants you to think about it. If you think of college athletes as a special and peculiar class for whom work is play, rights or privileges, and making money is at best deeply suspicious and at worst downright evil. That is bizarre on its face, but also that's the underlying moral calculus of amateurism, the insidious upside-down reasoning that labels a labor-exploiting, self-admitted cartel clean, 
and the mere act of earning what you're worth dirty. And I just think we have to, like, that has to be the frame for this. So this week, Professor Victoria Jackson had an op-ed in the LA Times. She suggested, if not paying the players, at least giving them lifetime scholarships so they can always come back at any point in time and finish their education. Doing so would finally, like, re- like pull off the mask that this is, act- you know, this isn't really about education, right? If it was, we could give them lifetime scholarships. Jonas Sarah and Ben Strauss suggested multiple things in their book, Indentured, which came out a couple years ago, including giving these players lifetime health insurance coverage so that whenever they have trouble in the future with their bodies or their brains, they're covered for that. Nasera's talked about putting salary caps if people are concerned about how much money these players could get. A federal judge at one point tried to implement a $5,000 stipend that athletes would receive upon leaving school. Uh, that was overturned. So there are a ton of ideas here, including just, you know, let there be a market and just pay these people. And I just think it's important to say, like, forget all the logistics of this. It's just ethical to pay these guys, to pay players for their actual labor for these institutions. So what do you all think is the way forward here? Yeah, I think that it was, it's important to note that, like you said in the intro, Jess, that there are a few different models here, you know, there's a lot of fear mongering that goes on when you talk about changing a system such as amateurism. That fear comes from, first of all, people being comfortable with what they know and with what they've kind of grown up with. But it also comes from the people in power who, as we've discussed before, are afraid that any change in the system is going to cause them to lose this power that they have hoarded throughout the years. Um, I think one of the things that is worth pointing out is the fact that one of the myths I constantly hear about why amateurism, why ending amateurism would ruin college sports is this myth of parity, this fact that, you know, well, we have to keep a level playing field for everyone. But Alabama and Clemson have met in three of the past four (laughs) national championship games. I did some digging, a piece on Think Progress that will go up on Monday. And literally, at the end of the national championship game, once again, we're recording this before the game, there will have been 12 college football playoff games within the last four years, and Clemson or Alabama will have won 11 of the 12. Oh, my gosh. Um, furthermore, <laughs> if you look, Dabo Swinney is, I believe, the number sixth highest paid coach in the country. And of course, um, Nick Saban is the top paid coach in the country. If you look at the top 10 of the highest paid coaches in the country, most of these schools have been to national title games in the past 10 years. Money and whoever has the biggest pocketbooks, these things are already tipping the scales in college football, in college athletics. These things are already making a difference. The only problem is that none of that is going to the players. So the only playing field that ending amateurism would upend is this completely uneven playing field between the coaches and the administrators and the players. It would just help even out that a little bit. Honestly, that's what people are so terrified about. I got to shout out Andy Schwartz, an econ- uh, economist who does such great work on this. And he actually has a piece about the 13 myths of ending amateurism. And he goes through and he counters each and every one of them. And when you really look at it, it's it's so simple. It, you just, you do it and you figure it out and you go from there. Brenda? 
Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, and I think about it all the time. I think that the answer is unionization. I think that seems to be the right way to go forward. There's a ton of precedent for paying students for labor, for subsidizing their research, for subsidizing their education. And you could do, for example, if if you wanted to do something like work-study, There are quite a lot of programs that are available to look at as models for paying students in different ways. I just think you have to get rid of it altogether. You know, no other, honestly, as a university professor, it has nothing to do with education. It has no, it can't, it just can't. Those players are not students at Clemson. I'm sorry. They're just, they can't be. Look at the attention on them right now. Look at the demands on their time. There's no way they're buying their books. Come on. I mean, even it's it's a charade that is insulting to me as a professor. And I think it's gross. And honestly, I mean, the fact that they don't pay them is just painful. So I love Victoria Jackson's piece. It's great. I mean, it would be a big step forward to protect players' futures to at least give them the opportunity after eligibility to to have their scholarships. But I'm also just so done with it. No other country in the world does this. It, no other country. And we can find some good things. We can find some women's soccer stuff that I love. But I'm talking about this big money stuff. It's absurd. Shireen? Hi. Yeah, thanks. I think that, I mean, I'm listening very intently because, I mean, I live in Canada and America is the center of college athletics seemingly in the world. It's where everybody aspires to go. I have a kid that's, I don't know what you call her. She's in grade 11. She's like a sophomore or junior. I don't know what, I can't remember how it goes, junior. And she's prepping to go and her dream is to go to the United States for college sports because that's the best in the world. And I find it really problematic when still kids aspire to this system that is so inherently problematic, where their bodies aren't valued, their time isn't valued, and their education is considered second rate. And when, Lindsay, you're just lift, listing off the salaries of the coaches and Nick Saban, how much does he make? Like $7 million? I just, it's mind-boggling when there's so many kids that are struggling in those systems and the supports they need. So I'm coming from a kind of a personal angle here, but it worries me when the top system in the world and the one that the kids aspire to is this one. Like this needs to come down and it needs to be refixed and restructured because I just, it scares me. Yeah. I, I mean, I know we've, I, there's, there's something about this where I'm like, I know we've talked about this before and I feel like I'm just going to say the same thing I said before, but I feel like anytime we talk about this, we have to always bring race into it because that's clearly going on. I mean, people, Lindsay, you're talking about that's making all the money. The vast majority of those people are white men. And as we know, the gen- the money generating sports on college campuses are often men's football and men's basketball, and the majority of those players are black. And a lot of the time, especially at historically white universities, they're th- like they make up a huge percentage of a team, whereas you know there's only two percent of the entire school population are black men, something like that. Um, So they're way overrepresented, overrepresented on the teams themselves. And then we know on top of all of that, that there's been really great, I can't remember, he used to be at the University of Pennsylvania and he's, I want to say 
USC, somewhere out in California, there's a professor who every so many years, four years, three years, he does stats on the rates of actual degrees of these players on men's basketball and football teams, the Power Five conferences. And it breaks down by race. The people who get degrees um, that are athletes are more likely to be white. If you're a black student athlete, especially a black male student athlete, you're less likely to actually get a degree in the end. That matters. This is not set up to get these guys degrees. And that shows when we look at, especially when we break it down by race. And then on top of that, if you haven't looked into what happened at UNC, as far as paper classes, a lot of these guys aren't even getting real degrees if they actually get them. These are fake classes that they're creating in order to get them out the door with a degree in their hand. But They've been sued. Like UNC was sued by former athletes who were like, we didn't even get an education in the end, even though I have a degree. And on top of all of this stuff, if you look at who supports paying players, that breaks down by race. White people are less likely to support paying players. Like all of this stuff is so messed up and it can all just be fixed by paying them. We know how to pay people. We live in such a capitalistic society like it's not that hard to pay people and the idea that like this is the one place where it's super complicated is just bullshit and all of these factors that go into it especially racism um, we just have to always talk about that absolutely Uh, brenda Yep, race is really important. I remember when Hofstra was dismantling its football program when I first got there for a medical school, which I just like to say for the thousandth time makes me super proud of Hofstra. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really glad that we're fixing brains instead of damaging them. But when that happened, there was actually someone pointed out what that would do to the diversity numbers. So exactly what you're saying, Jess. And it was like, really? Really? Like, that's an argument for keeping the football program. You don't think... Find another way. Right. You don't think there's enough. And people were just livid with that Uh. statement saying, are you serious? Like, you don't think you can find a number of diverse students that deserve to get in for their brains? And I would just like to say one last thing, which is that coming out of a Division I school, we should remember that the hundreds of Division I schools don't make money. These aren't money-making programs. You're, you're talking about very few, very few. So the whole idea that somehow these are, schools need to keep their athletic programs because they're beneficial and they need to sort of make these contracts and take on sponsors and do these things because they're beneficial to the university. There's no statistics that they're beneficial for enrollment. It's not clear how alumni spending works in that sense beyond the top 10 programs. So it's, you know, people within universities that argue that we need it in the university. I just don't see the evidence for that. And then they'll say, you're totally right, Brenda. And then these programs that aren't even making money will still somehow find a way to pay their coaches millions of dollars. Oh, yeah. And And the idea that there's no money. Yeah. The idea that there's no money is just like. There's too much money. So they have to find a way to spend it on basically building spa retreats and paying uh, (laughs) assistant strength coaches a million dollars so that they can say there's no money so that they cannot pay the players. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Spa retreats? Oh, yeah. I mean, just the facilities facilities. that they they create, you know, for these programs. Like, look up Northwestern's facilities. Like, talk about a program not known for football. You should look up Northwestern's football facilities. It is wild. 
It's absolutely mind-boggling. And it just it just goes back to this. Amateurism is a sham. It doesn't make any sense. It's stupid. And this doesn't actually directly have to do with the NCAA. The NCAA is somehow the common sense person in this story. But I really want to talk a little bit about, before we end, uh, Maori Davenport, the high school basketball player in Alabama who was accidentally, so she's a Team USA basketball player. She was the MVP of the under-18 tournament, FIBA's under-18 tournament in Mexico City this past August, led uh, Team USA. She got paid an $850 stipend from USA Basketball for this tournament. She cashed the check because it was from USA Basketball, so she assumed it was okay. USA Basketball then decides it's made a huge mistake. It's not supposed to send these checks to players who have remaining high school eligibility left because the amateurism rules differ so much from state to state. So USA Basketball usually checks with these state administrations before administering this, once again, stipend. But they had just completely failed and not done that. When Maori found out, she returned the money. And yet the Alabama High School Athletics Association has still decided that the mere fact that she cashed this $850 check directly given to her from USA Basketball in an official manner made her ineligible to play her senior year of high school. This She is a uh, number 15 on the list of top recruits. She's already said she's going to play at Rutgers next year. But this is her senior year getting to play for her hometown team, public high school in her hometown, try and lead them back to a a defending championship. It makes absolutely no sense. There's right now a big public campaign to try and convince the Alabama High School Athletic Association to overturn this decision. But it's actually been upheld through appeals already twice. And so what you're left with is just, to me, the ultimate example of how this is all a sham. This is all so ridiculous. Maori getting this check doesn't impact anybody. And the fact that she even returned the check and it's still being called just shows that this isn't about the actual money. This is all about control. And it's all about keeping people, mostly Black athletes, in their place. I want to add about this that C. Vivian Stringer actually supported her publicly. And like her... Well, yeah, I mean, Stringer is going to be her coach next year. Yeah, exactly. And I'm saying that like publicly coaches are now talking about how horrible this is. And I this story made me so mad. It's like, I think the seventh thing that made me mad in 2019, I have a very long list already. And this was infuriating because she, her parents are the ones that came forward and tried, like they as a family tried to make right a wrong and it was still slapped in their faces. And I mean, I hear Alabama and the athletics, they're a black family. I can't help wonder if Alabama is just being racist. I know like it's far-fetched theory for me, but I just, I'm so frustrated at the injustice of it. There's no advocacy for the players. Who is advocating? Aren't these federations supposed to support the players? Yeah, no. All right. Hi, all. Lindsay here with the fabulous Caitlin Thompson. 
who, Caitlin, I'm going to let you really introduce yourself because you have so many titles, Racket Magazine, creator and editor-in-chief. Is that your title? I'm the publisher. So publisher. Close. I am, along with my <laughs> very good friend, David Shaftel, the co-creator of this tennis print magazine. I host a couple of tennis podcasts. I'm sort of like a media lady about town, but um, I'm really delighted to be talking to you. I'm a huge Burn It All Down fan. I've been listening to the show for, I think, since you guys started it. So I'm super jazzed to talk to you, Lindsay. It's nice to hear your voice. Awesome. Well, we are equally as excited on our end. So I want you to tell us a little bit about Racket Magazine. It's this quarterly print magazine. It's the completely different direction that media has been going over these past few years. But I talked with you when you were starting it. And you just had this radical notion that this was going to work. I mean, I think when we talked about it, it was almost two and a half years ago. And you're still here. So that's got to be a good sign, right? Yeah, we're thriving. You know, from the jump, David and I knew that we wanted to make something that felt really essential and really lean in and very sort of immersive. And a print magazine felt like that was such a beautiful sort of house for these ideas and this visual language that we felt like we had developed between the two of us over about a decade of friendship and playing tennis and traveling together and and both being journalists, obviously. You know, and I think because we're both journalists, um, you know, we both worked at other magazines. I had worked at Time Magazine. Dave had worked at um, sort of like famously The Source, the hip hop magazine, you know, and, and working a lot for newspapers and, and a lot of digital sites affiliated with huge media organizations, we just started to feel like, you know, you could just throw anything up on the internet, but but what were you really saying? And we didn't want to be part of that sort of metabolism where things just kind of churn through. And, and if you can write the best headline or optimize the best search, you have the chance of getting the audience today. But we felt like what we had to say about this sport that we really loved was different than anything else that was really being discussed about it, which is the culture, the history, the visual sort of poetry to it, the elegance and some of the grit and some of the, you know, cool cultural stuff and its relation to hip hop, its relation to film, its relation to to literature that that you wouldn't get by seeing anything on the internet. So it was the, sort of the combination of things we naturally liked and the idea that by creating something that was print, we were making something really valuable and maybe a billion people wouldn't see it. You know, even now, two and a half years in, like we're, we're still reaching in the tens of thousands of people, but each of those people pays us to consume this thing. So it actually works financially because it starts feeling really precious. Of course, everyone should also listen to the Racket Magazine podcast, which is Caitlin and Renee Stubbs, the legendary uh, Australian doubles player. The, the best thing about your podcast and your magazine is the diverse array of voices that you kind of bring to the front. Because even in tennis, which you know has more gender balance than most sports, and e- in the media as well, it's still overwhelmingly older male and white, you know. Uh, yeah, it's so boring. And that def- that that defines what kind of stories that you see, which ends up defining the whole sport, which is just with us, with David and I, we just kind of decided from the jump, like we were going to go for gender parity. We're going to get as wide an array of voices in every category possible, A, because we felt like it was just mission centric. And our goal with the magazine was to show and have a different kind of conversation about the game. And B, we wanted people to feel that they were being spoken to and having tennis writers, typically white, typically male, typically older, God, you and I know from being in, you know, the media centers and all these tournaments, 
it's a bunch of like crusty old men who They're have the same so kind of opinions. Crusty. <laughs> and like they don't ever get out to the courts they don't actually watch the tennis as far as i can tell they don't even really like tennis and for us like hiring people to write for our magazine a lot of whom don't write about tennis sometimes don't even know very much about tennis but have an idea about how tennis relates to their world of fashion so i'm thinking of thessaly laforce for example who's a woman biracial our age writes mostly for T Magazine, a former Vogue staffer, not somebody who plays a lot of tennis, knows that much about tennis, but she really loves the tennis style. And so she brings so many different things to a conversation about tennis. She just wrote about Benoit Paire for our latest issue. Then somebody who's like, oh yeah, Benoit Paire, he's not ranked high. Who cares about him? It's like, whoa, 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 there's a lot to care about here. He's interesting and weird and different. And here's why. And somebody like her is going to bring in a totally different perspective and make it interesting. And, and sometimes even convince people in the tennis world already that things that they've maybe dismissed players or ideas are worth a second look because somebody from outside of this very small, very sort of, you know, echo chambery, you know, universe is, is saying something new. God, that is so important. <laughs> okay. So now that we've talked about big picture stuff and talked about racket, I want to get down into talking about the Australian open more in particular about the women, because <laughs> let's face it, they're more interesting than the guys right now. I, I just want to catch everyone up. Our top five right now looks like Simona Halep, Angelique Kerber, Caroline Wozniacki, Naomi Osaka, and Sloane Stevens, which is just an incredible top five. Amazing top five. You've got uh, also Alina Svitolina there at six, Pliskova at seven, who just won a title to start off the year. And I'm so excited by how good she looks. Petra Kvitova sitting there at number eight. Then Kiki Burtons and Daria Kasakina rounding out our top 10. Serena is there at number 17. Madison Keys is at number 18. Just some other names that our listeners will know. Sharapova is still struggling. She's at 30. And Venus, after a rough year, is at 37. But who who are you excited about heading into this Australia? What are you expecting to happen here? Okay. being Expecting anything to happen on the women's side is sort of a, a losing proposition because literally anything could happen. The 10 to 13 women you mentioned could all win this thing. Maybe not Venus, but maybe Venus. She made two Grand Slam finals two years ago at the age, my age of 38. Like she's, she's not, don't count Venus out. The way I think about the top 10 and like slash the top, like really 15 who could probably win this thing is you can actually firmly sort of divide it into two categories. You've got your Simona Halep's, your Angelique Kerber's, your Kiki Burton's, your Sloane Stevens's. These are the counter punchers. These are like the maybe don't win a ton of tournaments, but win the ones that matter, grind everybody down after two weeks and are really, really solid and make deep, 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 deep runs, which is why they're ranked in the top 10 sort of perennially. If they have a good day, they're in a Grand Slam quarter, semi, any, any time. Then you have like the women who have weapons, huge weapons, and they're all over the place. They have a good streak. They can take a title. They have a bad streak. They're out in the first round. This is Naomi Osaka. This is Karolina Pliskova. Petra. This is <laughs> Petra, Petra, Petra. Certainly Petra Kvitova, who lost in the first round last year. And then one you didn't mention, who's, who my eyes are on, who just took a title home, who I love, um, is Arena Sabalenka from Belarus. I think she's probably, what, like 12, 13 in the world right now. She, you know, watching the U.S. Open, the last Grand Slam, you know, of 2018, 
she played Naomi Osaka in a very tight, I think it was fourth or fourth round or quarterfinal match where they went three sets. This was the future of women's tennis. They're both like 20 years old. I think Naomi is a little bit older and Sabalenka, you know, is, is just coming into her own. And the feeling in that tournament sort of atmosphere was whoever of these youngins won that match was going to win the tournament. And then of course, Naomi Osaka went on to win the tournament, but first strike tennis, huge shots, but like kind of going for broke, have all the weapons, but can increasingly sort of hang in there. And so the, the weapon filled women are typically more my favorites. I like people who take initiative watching Caroline Wozniacki and Simona Halep play like backboard tennis was a little bit rough after like hour 17, or at least that's what it felt like to me last year. So I'm personally rooting for one of the women who have, you know, first strike, win the point tennis. And and Sabalenka is kind of a dark horse here because she just won a title in Shenzhen. She won Wuhan towards the end of last year. She kind of had like, a, she came on strong towards the back half of 2018. And to me, watching her is just like mind-blowingly amazing. The way that Osaka can, can play when she hits her type. She's awesome. And she's just like such a beast. So like, I'm pretty jazzed about that. And Sabalenka is my, my sort of favorite to watch. Will she win it? I don't know, but she, she plays well and she'll go deep for sure. I really like that. I was going to ask you if there's anyone outside the top 10. And look, she's there at number 11. So that is totally an <laughs> answer to the question. So that works. Um, <laughs> that is perfect. What well, we have to ask, what about Serena? Serena is so hard to have expectations for. I mean, she expects the world of herself every day. It's like the the Serena fans are so interesting because there are people like you and I who watch tennis who are, I'm assuming, sort of generalist Serena fans where it's like we love her and there's so much to say about her game, but we tend to be more realistic about how she does. And then there's like the people who are blinded in their love for Serena who, who expect her to win every single tournament and are freaking out if she can't pull out of a third round. And whereas people like us are like, well, she's not exactly, you know, up to the top of her game. So she did pretty well. You know what I mean? And so that always makes it tough to sort of predict how Serena's doing. I will say she looked much fitter at the Hopman Cup. And obviously the Australian is an event that she's super comfortable with. I think it's probably her favorite Grand Slam. I think a much better Serena is coming into this tournament. A much more mentally focused Serena is coming to this tournament. You know, and the thing with Serena, you can't, there's zero chance you can counter out. You can't counter out until she has lost the last point of a match. And I've seen And even then I sometimes don't count her out. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) but I do think that what is completely different right now after this past year is I think that the next generation, the top 10, the top 20, that these players have more confidence going against her than they ever have. They lost their fear. Uh, every the the fear that mystique. She's been beaten in two Grand Slam finals in the last year. You know, I think it's just not that they don't respect her. They should absolutely respect her. But I don't think she's winning many matches before she gets on the court, and that's good. Like I like that for tennis. You know, uh, you know, it's good for tennis. It, it, for it's sure. good for it's tennis for, for sure. Tennis. And that's not a knock on her. It's just saying that it's just the reality of the situation. That's a really good way to put it. That when you when you win matches before you get on the court because you've psyched your opponent out because the the inevitability of your victory is so strong that they feel like they have no fighting chance that's gone it makes tennis better i mean look selfishly i as a gay lady want her to just walk away with two more grand slams put margaret court where she belongs in the uh, as a footnote of history um because she's a garbage person low 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 footnote (laughs) one of those footnotes nobody ever really (laughs) looks (laughs) 
whose, whose record didn't even mean anything no. until they moved the goalposts on Serena. And then Serena can retire, which is what she actually wants to do. But look, I'm happy to have her in the hunt. I think she's the best she's looked since she's come back from being a mother. So, you know, the other one I want to see do well is Vika. I really want to see Vika doing well. I don't know if, if she has it in her, but I always sort of personally root for Vika because I like her. And I think she's kind of bananas. So always has my vote. I've got to wrap this up, but I won't have to come you back, have you back because I have a billion more questions. But what do you think, briefly, could you bl- briefly sum up this giant cultural uh, conversation? Do you think we are going to see any advancements in the LGBTQ world in tennis this year? You mentioned that you yourself are gay and obviously a lot of tennis fans and a lot of tennis players are gay. A lot of the greatest in the game on the women's side And yet it's been a a sport that has been really falling behind other sports when it comes to inclusivity lately. Do you think we're going to see any steps forward in 2019? I think we're going to have really thoughtful and pointed journalists like Nick McCarvel, who comes to mind, who kind of keep raising the question. I think we have, thankfully, a larger culture and I don't just mean a tennis culture, I mean a sports culture and, and just a larger culture in general that, that stops looking the other way when people make homophobic jokes or, you know, which still happens among the men. I mean, look, the fact that we've, we were, tennis was ahead of the game in terms of gay rights, in terms of trans visibility, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And yeah, it's fallen behind. And I think what's interesting to me, and this kind of tracks back a little bit with what we were talking about with racket, like there was a time when tennis was more of a cultural zeitgeisty sport and therefore it could accommodate more culture, which is part of what we're talking about. It could accommodate a vast amount of viewpoints and ways, styles of play and personalities and fashion and, and amateurs hitting on public courts in, in, on, you know, in jean shorts and cement. And now we have, it shrunk a little bit. It shrunk down again to this boys clubby corporate, you know, eye banker kind of sport, which it was never meant to be. It's a global sport. It's a young sport. It's a diverse sport. And that's a great thing. And I think there's a bit of a disconnect between who's playing it and who's talking about it. And one of the things that I think is amazing and I hope continues and and I hope Racket in some small way is a part of is that we're trying to expand it back out again. Because when you make the larger culture, like we've seen with the Olympics, for example, more about the culture at large and the conversations that the culture at large is having as slowly and as frustratingly as, as they sometimes have it about, you know, people of color, about sexuality, about trans rights, about me too. You know, when you start talking about this stuff, it changes happen. It's slow, but change can't happen without that conversation. And, and what's so nice and, and comforting is, is the larger culture is grappling with this stuff. And the more we can make that happen in each of our individual sports, obviously tennis being my main focus, the better off those sports will ultimately be because they'll have to talk to the larger culture. And I think the more we make that happen, the more likely it is to happen. So you hear me not committing to any big change that's going to happen, but but you know, Nick McCarvel, our friend, is hosting a, another his second LGBT event in Australia, uh, in Melbourne next next week. Uh, you know, I'm I'm really ha- hoping that the more players are asked, the more it just becomes a conversation about creating a safe environment for male players who we all know are gay to come out. Like that's just going to get it to the place it needs to be, which is this is not a big thing. This is just another facet of people's humanity, but it's not going to be a safe space or really a truly you know, wonderful space that it should be where people are living as themselves until we get, you know, we get rid of that sort of old boys network. So I'm optimistic, but you know, we'll see. Everyone download the or subscribe to the Racket Magazine podcast. 
go pay to get the Racket Magazine quarterly. All right, Caitlin, thank you so, so much. Thanks, Lindsay. Okay, so it's been a few weeks since we've recorded a new episode, which means there's a ton of things to talk about in the world of women's soccer, and particularly in the world of those with power within women's soccer, um, utilizing it poorly, shall I say. Brenda, you want to get us started here? (laughs) Yeah, Lindsay, we've rang in the new year, but if the patriarchs of global soccer resolve to improve women's lot, they're already failing miserably. It's 2019, and, you know, we're hoping for more this year, this World Cup year. It feels like the momentum is on, the pressure on these organizations is greater than ever, the scrutiny that's happening. So it's it's frustrating, but exciting, too. Dominating the scene has been the appalling revelations of what's happened in Afghanistan, and I'm going to ask Shereen about that in just a second. So I'll, I'll leave that for her expertise. But there's a few other things. Firstly, in Somalia, um, there was a piece in The Guardian this week by Suzanne Rack, who reported that the Somali Federation is inactive and that the head of women's football, Shaima Mohammed has no idea, quote, where the money goes. And this is just really familiar. That sounds like every women's federation almost. So that's not surprising, but every time you hear it, it's more infuriating. In that piece, she writes that every national federation is entitled to money from FIFA with $100,000 of the $500,000 available for operational costs, ring-fenced for women's football. Now, I've read FIFA forward, backwards and forward, about a million times. And we've talked about this on the show. And I don't think that's right. I Actually, there's no necessary money to go to women's football in FIFA forward. There's incentive money. And there's money that goes to women and youth programs. If you control F in the FIFA forward document and search for women, I've said this before on the show, I'll say it again, do it, do, do it. It's a fun little thing when you have time on your hands. Go and actually read FIFA's development program, control F for women, and it will only come up three times with youth. It never comes up alone. So if you're saying development money can go to women and youth, you will never know where it goes. You will never have to be accountable as a federation. So it wasn't surprising it was more of the same, but it's still awesome to see, you know, big outlets like The Guardian feature people like Shema Mohammed and women who are just doing the work on the ground. So it's worth kind of discussing. And just to say that there's a lot of home, you know, closer to home in, in North America where we are issues with the NWSL draft now, just a few days away. Still, wait, who is it? I should ask you guys. Orlando doesn't have a coach going into the draft. Um, does Washington? I don't think so. The Dash just got a, a coach. So there's a lot of no commissioner. What, third year You're running? Say, no commissioner. No commissioner. Yeah. That's, that's a long job search. So there are plenty of issues in professional club soccer, too. And just one last thing that I want to complain about before I ask Shireen about the most dominant and troubling story is there's changes coming, too, with NWSL contracts, some of whom are paid, I'm sorry, by U.S. soccer. 
because they're national players and they actually pick up their contracts at the professional level. And so now that it's the World Cup and they're calling different people up, we're going to see some really confusing changes as far as that goes and ones that probably need, you know, some attention. But I do want to go to Shireen on this. The Afghanistan story, Shireen, could you give us sort of an update on what's happening right now? Well, we had Haley Carter and Mina Ahmadi. I spoke to them for a hot take um, in December. And we were, this was just before Suzanne's piece came out. And if you don't follow Suzanne Rack and her writing, she's one of the, she's the leading women sports writer, in my opinion, in Europe. She writes with care. The story was huge. The one about detailing the allegations against Karim Adin Karim, who was the president, was the president of the Afghan Football Federation, against whom these allegations are. And he has abused many players, like the details in the piece. It's very hard to write about this stuff. And I physically got ill when I read it. And so just a trigger warning for everybody out there. It's difficult to read, and but it needs to be written because, you know, to disclose and the players coming forward, you know, they told their manager, their coaches were aware and went forward. So this sort of is how the story unravels. I mean, you might have heard in November that the Afghan women's national team, some of the players didn't sign because the contracts that they were given were terrible. Shabna Mubarez, who actually is was the captain, is the captain, Rather, she made a public post about how, and we talked about this in the hot take. So have a listen there. It's a good start. Now, that ended up going forward in Susie talking with a bunch of players and talking to Khalida Popal, who we've had on the show last year with Kelly Carter, just as an interview. I mean, at Burn It All Down, we've been following this team and their progress. And we're good friends. You know, we're, we're proud friends of this team. And I think that, the allegations coming forward and what it is is Brenda said it, the patriarchs in football, the so-called uh, untouchables that, you know, have all this power. When the president of your federation is the one committing the crimes against the players, you really feel like there might not be a place to go, particularly when the AFC, which is the Asian Football Confederation, under whose umbrella AFF is, isn't doing anything. And FIFA and AFC knew about this abuse a year ago. I saw Khalida in Warsaw, and they're slow moving, where, I'm sorry, inaction becomes part of their action. They didn't even set out, a, as we know, FIFA is excellent at setting out committees. To, they didn't even do that yet. Is it really that fucking hard to say abuse of players is wrong? They cannot even do it because of their red tape, their bureaucratic politics, and their bullshit. And, you know, Honestly, the Afghan women's team is not looking for them for a solution. These women know they have to create their own. All women know this. We don't rely on men for solutions because they create problems. We create solutions to those problems that always affect us. This is no different. So I ended up in con my conversations with this uh, group of incredible people, Kelly Lindsay and Haley Carter are their coaches, and Khalida is like essentially the team manager. She's a former captain, and Khalida, it must be said, brought this team out of nothing. Like no football existed in Afghanistan, you know, you know, as a structure. Um, in between segments, maybe there'd be a match here and there, but there was no legitimate structure and representation. And she brought that out of nowhere, and she worked her butt off, and she continues to give her life and her for this. 
And it's just really frustrating when you see. And now one of the advantages is that Haley Carter and Lindsay, Kelly Lindsay, are not based in Afghanistan. They're American women and they're not based there. Haley is in Houston, Texas, and Kelly's abroad right now. But they're American women and feel that they can at least talk aloud openly. There's no immediate danger against them. There's always threats. They always get abuse and harassment online. But they can speak because for a lot of the survivors of this abuse, they're still in Kabul. And they can't speak publicly for fear of reprisal. So, I mean, there's many layers to the story. But just lastly, when I spoke with the women, I ended up starting the Change.org petition to implore FIFA and AFC to get off their sorry, lazy asses and do something. And when I say do something, I was very clear after speaking with Haley as well and Nina not to abolish the Federation because there are good people there who are not complicit. There are people working and wanting to play football. Don't penalize them. Figure it out. Remove the ones in power. Get rid of them. Cut off ties with them. But also speak out and advocate for the players and find out what they need. Don't swoop in and just do what you think. To FIFA, to the AFC, get in there and help them fix this. So the petition has th- over 1,300 signatures now, which is excellent, but I'm looking for like 18,000 plus more. So, you know, if you all could share that, and I know, thank you to my co-host and Bernard All Down has been doing that. This is just a very small thing that we can do. Absolutely. And it just, you know, Shereen, when you were talking about how the Americans on the team within the organization are able to speak out without fear just gave me chills because like that's what allyship should be right when you have that power then that's when you you use it for good to speak up for those who can't you know and i think it's a good lesson for all of us jess yeah thank you for all that shireen and for the work that you're doing on this it's so important one of the things when i'm listening to talk about this and and brenda's intro that went through like that laundry list of issues you know we talk all the time about women's sports and resources and you know Shereen reminds us all the time that there are women who don't even like have access to water that are trying to play sport. And you think about just the distance and the work that women have to go through in order to be able to play. And I think, you know, the Afghanistan women's team really shows us that, you know, this goes beyond, we should always be talking about pay equity and access to resources, access to water, things like that. But at the same time, you know, having to deal with abuse, just in order to play sport. Like that's a real thing that a lot of female athletes have to deal with just to play. And I think that gets lost a lot in the conversation, even as we're talking about female athletes as victims of abuse. It just makes me real sad when I think about that, that like just to play, that this is the kind of stuff that they have to deal with. And I, and I echo Brenda's statement about the fact that there is hope this year, like the Women's World Cup is coming up. I think it's going to be bigger than ever. And we just have such an opportunity as members of the media. And I know that we're going to do this here on Burn It All Down. But like for the other media that are listening to us talk about this, like we have the opportunity to draw attention to not just the sport. And it sucks that women don't just get to be athletes and play the sport that they love to play and that be it. But they don't. And we have a moment this year to really draw attention to these particular kinds of stories and to the fucked up system around these women, the things they have to go through just to be able to play. And I hope that that is part of the discussion that we're telling this whole story as we're talking about FIFA's Women's World Cup. Absolutely. And I echo the thanks for Shireen for all she's done 
taking on this story. I read through the abuse allegations and like she said, it's absolutely nauseating. And to think that this is what they had to put up with, Justin Orton had the opportunity to play, to recognize that this man had so much power and that this was such an open secret in so many ways and that they were kind of held captive. And it just, you know, we see things to a lesser, a much lesser extent. It's not always the graphic sexual abuse, but, you know, we see this notion of women should be grateful for any opportunity to play sports and then they should submit to kind of whatever they have to put up with in order to get through that. And like Jess said, it's just, it's kind of, it just it just kind of puts it in perspective how important it is for collective voices to speak up and to demand, no, women should not just be able to play sports. They should be able to play sports in a safe environment. They should be treated with respect. They should get an equitable share of the finances. And they should be protected by those in charge. Like these are the bare minimums. And it's not happening. We have, uh, obviously, it's a different scale. I don't want to act like I'm comparing it on scale to what's happening um, to Afghanistan team. But, you know, in we've talked a lot about what's happening at Sky Blue in New Jersey, the NWSL team where they've, you know, had porta potties and been trained, you know, been doing ice baths in trash cans. And this is a facility owned by, uh, this is a team that's led by US soccer. And just this offseason, I think it's up to four players on that team who have now decided they're not playing. They're going to Europe. And to me, it's just an example of these women taking back ownership of what they can control. And it's unfortunate that it's come to this, but it's great to see them stepping up. Shireen? Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, for those that don't know, the attorney general to the president of Afghanistan actually has set out investigation on this. So, um, and Khalida Popal has like publicly thanked them for that because something she said, she hasn't had hope in the process in a very long time, but there is now, but the way it's being handled and, you know, the president issued a statement because it's, it's a big deal. Like, and as we all know, sports are very political and being the president of the AFF is a political position. So it makes sense to say that. And I just wanted to remind people that the processes are not fast. And as Lindsay was saying, like here, we, we know that we've witnessed the most horrific abuse in the history of sport in the United States. We've seen it with uh, the NASA survivors and we know that it doesn't move and there's complicitness in this, but throughout this, there's something else. Again, I want to highlight the indomitable spirit and of the, of the players, the athletes. They do this because they love it. They do this as highlighting a problem in society and they're bringing it to attention. And Lindsay also talked about allyship really quickly. Alex Morgan actually tweeted her support. And I think this is, this is really important. And there is a GoFundMe for this team. They've paired up with Soccer Without Borders to continue their training and keep going because although football is the vehicle to which there was abuse, football is also their release and their respite. So let's keep it about that as well and their healing and give them the support where we can. All right. It's time for our favorite segment, the burn pile. I know we've all been storing up burns for a few weeks, so uh, (laughs) I hope that we can get through this unscathed. But uh, Jess, go. 
So Urban Meyer, <laughs> the now former coach of the Ohio State Buckeyes, took his team to the Rose Bowl this postseason where they beat the Washington Huskies in what Meyer says is his last game coaching ever. And he has said such things before. But whether or not he coaches again, he does have plans in store for his post-OSU life, namely to stick around Ohio State and teach. Last month, and I've been holding this in, kind of, last month, Meyer told a local Columbus, Ohio TV station that he will be co-teaching a character and leadership course at Fisher College of Business at Ohio State. L-O-L. And he said he also has plans to work with athletic director Gene Smith in some capacity and still be a part of the football program, though he's not exactly sure what his role will be. This is a stunning and not at all stunning development, given that at the beginning of what he says will be his last season ever coaching college football, Meyer was suspended for three games after it came out that he not only knowingly kept a reported domestic abuser on staff for many, many years, a reported abuser who had all kinds of other disciplinary issues under Meyer, but that Meyer lied to a lot of people about keeping that reported abuser on staff, including the media, the athletic director he'll continue to work for, and the investigators hired by Ohio State to look into all of this. But he also, you know, won the Rose Bowl. So he's off to teach about character and leadership. (laughs) Lucky, lucky students. The hypocrisy of what he does versus what he says is so blatant that it's laughable that so many people at Ohio State don't give a shit at all about that, though, is disgusting. The system around college football and the people who populate it are an ongoing disappointment. So I'm just throwing this onto the burn pile where it deserves to live. Burn. 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 We've been waiting for that. (laughs) All right, Brenda. (laughs) This has also been something that has been simmering. In, in the back of my head, Gabriel Camargo, who is president of Deportes Tolima. It is a club, a top league club in Colombia, came out two weeks ago, a, responding to a lot that had happened with Copa Libertadores, which is the professional competition in, in South America and how the Colombian women who won that were not getting paid. And his response, he is president of this club, Deportes Tolima, said that's because women's football is a petri dish of lesbianism and that women players are usually drunk. I would like to say that Gabriel Camargo is also a former senator like of the country. And so when I tweeted out about it, the first joyful responses of a bunch of machista assholes was to tell me, of course, they're not going to kick him off of the club. He's the owner. Like, like men tell me things like, wow, that's amazing that you know that. And like, (laughs) ha, you got me. It's like, um, I want to burn the responses to that tweet because obviously the league and obviously the federation can sanction owners, dumbasses. So like, yeah, I know he owns the club. That makes it worse. Okay. So I'm burning everything, Camargo's role and their response to it. Burn. 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 All right. I got to take on the WNBA and the NBA here. So Christy Tolliver, we have talked a lot about her. She is a, uh, the WNBA champion, uh, great point all-star point guard who is now an assistant coach 
for the Washington Wizards in the NBA, you know, just spending her WNBA offseason doing nothing, you know, lazy. Um, anyways, it's obviously a great thing that she is an, she's the first active player, active WNBA player to be an assistant coach in the NBA, which is such an exciting thing. It comes out, our friend of the show, Howard Megdal, reported in the New York Times, she is only earning $10,000 for the entire season as a coach. Why? Because there's this WNBA rule that the WNBA teams can only, they have $50,000 set aside to provide to players who don't go overseas during the off season. So they can, you know, pay these players this money in order to do promotional work, to stay behind and do promotional work. Well, the Mystics already pay $40,000 of their $50,000 allotment to Elena Deladon, who has Lyme disease and doesn't go overseas because she's kind of worried about the wear and tear of her body and with her immune system. So they pay her the $40,000 for promotional work. Now, here's the thing. Since the Washington Wizards and the Washington Mystics are owned by the same company, what we have is they are considering it illegal or against these rules for the uh, monumental entertainment, the company that owns it, to pay Tolliver a regular salary. They're saying that this money has to come from this $50,000 allotment. Otherwise, it's a competitive advantage. <laughs> uh, oh anyways, God. this is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Tolliver should be making in the six figures easy for this job and instead she's getting paid like an intern when she is in fact a very qualified assistant so i just like to burn this rule and i hope that the WNBA fixes this in the next collective bargaining agreement burn 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 my burn involves juventus which can be of no surprise to anybody so Let's talk, we don't talk a lot Italian football, and that's okay because, you know, that's fine. The men's side is, like, bleak and annoying and irritating, much like Juventus itself that harbors a rapist. So let's just say this. The AC Milan versus Juve match with the Serie A, one of their finals will be held, the Supercoppa final will be held, in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, on January, in January, mid-January, 15th or 16th. Now, you're like, why is Supercopa in Saudi Arabia? That kind of makes no sense. Well, yeah, money, thanks. So there's money. So along with that money are stringent and sexist rules. So apparently for the Supercopa final in Saudi Arabia that will be held, there are men-only sections. So women can't go to stadiums. And I know you all are like, wait a minute, Shireen. I thought it was Iran where women couldn't go. I thought that you said that Saudi Arabia women could attend. That's right, friends. That's what I thought too. But apparently women aren't capable of going to matches on their own in the stadiums. They have to be in family sections. So not only is this backward, it's also where we see absolute systemic, like systemic misogyny and sexism in football. That's being supported by leagues and federations like Serie A. So basically, Italy is like, oh, we don't see any problem with this. Why are women needing to go anyway? We get this. No, you don't get it. It's bullshit. 
and it's not acceptable. And you should not have your final in Jeddah because this is not okay. So to all the women, City Ah fans out there, I'm sorry that this keeps happening to you. I'm wondering why you support City Ah in the first place, but that's a different issue. We could talk about that later. I'm saying I'm sorry this happens. It's bullshit and it needs to be burned. All right, let's talk about some badasses of this week. I'm sure we've missed some because it's been a long break. But first of all, Khadijah Bunny Shaw, who was just named the Guardian Footballer of the Year. Shireen is making me shout out Canadian tennis player Bianca Andreescu from Canada for beating Venus Williams at the ASBC Classic. Uh, I do love you, Shireen. I do not love this. Sarah Nurse of the Toronto Furies hockey team, who currently leads all CWHL rookies with 18 points. Have to give a shout out to the Baylor Bears for upsetting UConn and giving them their first regular season loss since 2014. It was a pretty phenomenal showcase of defense. And Amanda Nunez, who won the UFC featherweight belt. So awesome. And can I get a drum roll? All right. Our badass woman of the week is Rebecca Brunson, the WNBA superstar who has just joined the broadcast team for select Minnesota Timberwolves games. It is so exciting to see more and more women in the broadcast booth for men's and women's games. So uh, keep killing it, Rebecca. All right. Finally, let's finish things up. What is good? Uh, Jess. Yeah, so I try to keep it short. Baylor beating UConn was on my list. That was a really fun game to watch. Uh, I wanted to give a shout out to Strong Opinions Loosely Held, which is a podcast that I was actually on. Their latest season dropped at the right around Christmas time. Um, it's all about women in sport, and I'm on the first episode. But the whole thing is great. So Strong Opinions Loosely Held, if you're looking for a podcast. Everyone, go get your flu shot. I got mine yesterday. Finally, finally. It's not too late. You don't have to be embarrassed. I was a little bit. And then I wanted to say I am reading a book by Sam Anderson called Boomtown. It is about Oklahoma City. It's a history of the city. It's brilliantly written. Sam Anderson is an amazing writer. But a lot of it is about basketball. It's about the OK City Thunder. And there's this amazing chapter early on that connects the Seattle Supersonics with the Oklahoma City Thunder, which is obviously they Thunder stole them from Seattle, but the noise, the the sound like that breaking the sound barrier is a similar phenomenon to Thunder, and he connects all these things along with Boeing and doing sonic supersonic or sound testing over Oklahoma City in the '60s, and it is just this amazing narrative, and I'm enjoying it thoroughly. So, Boomtown by Sam Anderson, amazing. I'll go quickly. Um, for a super serious one, my new obsession is 90 Day Fiance. And everyone should watch <laughs> it because it is really high class entertainment. And I want to talk about it with everyone I know. So please, flamethrowers, get on this. All right, Bren. Winter break is awesome. It's so awesome. The holidays are over. My kids are back (laughs) in school and I have things that are like months late that I'm doing. So if I've owed you something, look out because it's coming your way. 
So yeah, winter break is, it's so great. And I don't go back to teaching until the 29th and I'm going to be all like refreshed and caught up. I've got this. You have got this. All right, Shireen. I just finished a book called Seven Fallen Feathers by Tanya Talaga, who is an Ashinaabe journalist. And she writes about, it was a very heavy book and I read it during the break and it like, everybody needs to read this. It talks about the history of you know, crimes against Indigenous youth in Canada. And it's very heavy as a book, but it's something that we really need to read. And I just, I'm so excited because I got to read again, like not articles and not research, like a book, which was wonderful. Um, And I need to make more time for that. I also am going to miss winter break because my kids have been sleeping at like 3 a.m. and waking up at like 2 p.m., which is just fine, y'all. And I'm caught up on season five with Law and Order. And I'm going through all the seasons again. So I did that. I love Lenny Briscoe. Um, I'm also really, really, really happy to be back recording with my co-host because I missed y'all so much while we were gone. And, you know, we had the burn pile riding high and getting higher. And I'm just really happy to be back. Yay, 2019. All right. We made it through. I am so proud of us. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening this week. Uh, We just love you all so dearly. Um, If you want to know more about us, our website, burnitalldownpod.com. On Facebook, we're at Burn It All Down. On Twitter, Burn It Down Pod. Please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. That would be us your favorite podcast. And look, we'll be here next week and every week for the next 50 weeks because uh, there's a lot to burn down. And I'll suck you up.